Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 18. Thank you, Caitlin, for reading that. I wanted you to see the big picture of what's happening in this text. I wanted you to hear the whole passage. And I wonder, to some of you, if you're thinking to yourself right now, and I kind of hope you are, that's a little bit of an unusual passage. There's some things happening here that we don't normally see in Scripture, kind of like this back and forth dialogue. Now, I've been thinking about an analogy this week about preaching And it's something I've thought about before, but I think this passage is very relevant to this analogy. I think being a preacher is a little bit like being a tour guide. Maybe a tour guide in, uh, in my vision anyway, a a grand national park, you know, like Yosemite or you've got Yellowstone or any of these great national parks. And you go there and you can see all the beauty, all the majesty on your own. You don't need a tour guide, right? That's how God's word is, right? The beauty, the majesty, the glory of it is the spirit that has spoken the text and is speaking the text, present tense, as you read, as you study. The point of a tour guide is not to put the attention on the tour guide. The point of the tour guide is to point out some things, to say, hey, don't miss this. I want you to see this. So imagine that, that, that that's what we're doing this morning. We're, we're in Yellowstone. We're in one of these great national parks. And there's this unusual rock formation. That's what this scripture text is. And what I want to do this morning is I want to make some observations. I want to point out some things in the text. Not that you'll go home, and, I, and I, hope, I hope this isn't what we do here at Fellowship, that you go home saying, man, you know, that sermon was like a three on a scale of 10, or it was an eight on a scale of 10, or that preacher's greater, this preacher's my favorite, that preacher's my, my, my favorite. I know there's some of that. I mean, it's part of being, being human, but we want the attention to be here, men and women, right? So I want, what I want you to do, and I'm, just, I'm not going to hold back in, in my intentions this morning. My intention is that you would leave here and you would say, that passage is amazing, The Bible, the scripture is amazing, right? Not the sermon. But here's the thing. For you to see that this is amazing, I've got to point some things out because there are probably not too many of you in the room as you read that that you're thinking, that's amazing. You're probably thinking, that's a little bit weird, a little bit different. I want to read to you the words of one commentator that was writing on this passage. This is what he said. It kind of captures my feeling about the passage when I first read it. For all the world, God and Abraham, in this story look like two people in a marketplace haggling over the price of melons. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. This is strange, you know? God and Abraham going back and forth, a man sort of standing up to God and kind of, what is this deal? And is is God really going to base his justice and his judgment on this conversation he's having with Abraham and this haggling back and forth? That's kind of how it looks like at first. That's what I mean when I say there's a little bit of an unusual rock formation I want to point out. But here's the thing. You dig down deep under this text, you're going to see two massive theological themes start coming to life that will be played out throughout the rest of the scripture. I want to point those out to you. Number one, the first theme, the remarkable relationship God had with Abraham. The remarkable relationship God had with a person, human being. We'll talk about that. And then the second major theme, I'll go ahead and tell you what it is, just a preview of the whole message here. The second theme is the remarkable nature of God's justice. Right? So remarkable relationship, remarkable justice. That's where we're going to go this morning. Let's dig in. First theme, I want to reread verses 16 through 19, and I want you to listen for the personal, intimate, relational language that's used. And I'll pause a couple times to point some things out so you don't miss them. Verse 16, then the men rose up. 
from there and looked down towards Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Pause right there. Who are the men? Well, remember from last week, three mysterious visitors had showed up at Abraham's tent and it, it comes to be understood throughout the passage, one of them was the Lord himself, like God showing up and, and then eating with Abraham. You know how personal and intimate that is. And then there's these two other men that we're going to come to find out are messengers or angels of God. So it's God and two of his messengers. Now, what's significant about this is they're walking together, which seems just so normal, right? It's ordinary. You walk every day. I walk every day to and fro. If you're walking with someone else, what are you probably doing? You're probably talking. This is just a, kind of like eating last week. This is a normal everyday thing, but the significance is Abraham's doing it with God. So remember Adam walking with God in the Garden of Eden, you know, in the cool of the day, it says Adam walked with God. That's what this takes your mind back to. It's this intimate, personal thing. Abraham's walking with God and these two angels. How remarkable, but how ordinary at the same time. Keep going. Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Have you ever had a relationship with someone that you perceived to be someone of significance or influence? Maybe they held some governmental position or maybe they're the head of a company or maybe they're really wealthy or they had some celebrity status. When that person says to you, hey, I want to invite you into the inside. I want to tell you something that everybody knows. Doesn't that draw you in? Doesn't that kind of make you feel valued? It's a personal thing. That's what God is doing here with Abraham. I'm going to let you in on my plans, Abraham. Reminds me a little bit of what God did with Noah, right? When God came to Noah and said, Noah, this is what I'm going to do, and you have a part in this. That's what's happening here. So already in these first few verses, a reference back to your mind, Adam and his relationship with God, and now Noah and his relationship with God. Keep going. Just one more verse for now. Verse 19. I have chosen him. That word chosen could be translated known. Right here, the personal intimate language. I have known him. I've chosen, personally chosen him. So that, here's the reason God chose Abraham. He may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. I want to point out some covenant language in that verse. Chosen, command, keep, righteousness, justice, what God has spoken. Those are all covenant terms, covenant ideas. So God is saying, I entered into a covenant with you, Abraham. Remember that from two or three weeks ago and the animals were cut and all those things. This is a, the covenant. And by the way, Abraham was circumcised and as Lloyd said last week, he's probably still sore from the sign of the covenant. He is a marked man. And God is saying, I, I'm gonna enter into this personal covenant with you. I'm gonna let you in on the inside. I'm gonna share with you the plans. I have known you. I have chosen you. Hear the personal nature of this. So the first big idea under this theme of this remarkable relationship between God and Abraham is that the relationship was personal. It was personal. God chose him. Now, why did he chose him? To represent his rule, to be an ambassador, if you will. Now, quick application, and then I'm going to get back in, in, into the text. Uh, men and women, those of you that are parents, grandchildren, or grandparents, rather, godparents, maybe mentor parents, or maybe you help in the learning center, right? The children's ministry. 
guess what you're called to be? Simply an ambassador, right? Notice in, in the words here in verse 19, God is saying, Abraham, I'm, I'm going to command you to teach your children and your household. And then God says, let me take care of the world. You focus on your kids. You focus on your grandkids. You focus on your household. And that's those you have direct influence over, Abraham. You see how this works? So God has chosen you, parent, grandparent, godparent, children's ministry helper. God has chosen you to be an ambassador of his justice and righteousness, his good news to just those kids. And then he's going to use that to go to the ends of the earth. That's what's happening here. So first thing, that relationship is remarkably personal. The second thing I want you to see is this remarkable relationship is characterized on Abraham's side by extreme boldness and extreme humility. Boldness, humility, coupled together. I want you to see where we find this. It's, they're both all over the passage. Let's talk first about the boldness. Verse 23, this is after the angels had left, and it's just Abraham and Yahweh, God, face to face. Verse 23, Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You hear the boldness? Can you imagine going up to God like face to face? You know it's God. Abraham knows it's God by this point. And, and like asking that question, are you really going to do that? God, are you really going to do that? You hear the boldness in that? Now, it's even more bold when you realize that the Hebrew word that's translated uh, in the text, it's translated came near. Some of your translations may say approached. It is often used in the legal sense of a plaintiff or an attorney approaching the bench, approaching the judge. Right? So this was a bold man approaching the judge with this question. And it, it gets bolder because he keeps pressing in, right? So he goes all the way through the 50, 45, 40. It's six, if you count them. Six different questions, six different times. 50, how about 45? All the way down to 10. I like the way uh, one scholar put it, and I, and I was reading this this week. It kind of made me chuckle. Abraham is a man who will not take yes for an answer. Every time God says, I'll give you that, Abraham says, that's not enough. I want more. Do you, do you hear the boldness? In fact, to our ears, it almost sounds wrong. It's kind of like, I, I don't know if this is kosher. I don't know if I would talk to God this way. This is bold. But notice that his extreme boldness is coupled with extreme humility. Look at verse 27. Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust. And ashes. Hear the humility in that? Verse 30, O oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Verse 32, the same words. O oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. That means this is, this is my last time and then I'll zip it. You know, let me just say one more thing and then I'm done. Now, this is a great model for us. Extreme boldness on the one hand, but extreme humility on the other hand. Now, I've got to say this. Most people, when they think of humility today, they think of the wrong idea. They think of this idea of self-deprecating attitude. So this idea of, well, I, I don't have any gifts. I don't have anything to offer. Everybody's better than me. Everybody's smarter than me. Everybody's more gifted than me. That's not a humble person. That's not a humble person. And so if that's your idea of humility, I, I want to give you a, a new definition, a more biblical definition, because if you trace the concept of humility throughout Scripture, you find that humility and godliness go hand in hand. But it's not that small, self-deprecating, everybody's better than me humility. Here's what humility is. I'll just give you a, a definition. 
Real humility is a true perspective of who you actually are in relationship to God. That's simply it. It's a true perspective of who you actually are in relationship to God. Now, there's two sides of that if you think about it. The first side is this. Well, if I'm comparing myself to God, then I'm dust and ashes. Yes, you are. But the other side of that coin is God formed me from the dust and ashes. The other side of that coin is if I'm in covenant relationship with God, I am chosen, loved, accepted. You see, dust and ashes with extreme value to God. That's a humble person. They, they, they know who they are in relationship to God, both the dust and ashes side of things and the chosen, holy, beloved side of things. Do you get that? It's, it's both of them. That's humility in the scripture. So therefore, this is why Abraham can go right up to God and he can say, yes, I'm dust and ashes, but I, I, I want to press into this, God. You see the boldness? You see the humility. Now, I want you to think about this back and forth haggling as a prayer. Because that's what this is. Prayers talking to God. That's what Abraham is doing. In fact, in the whole scripture, this is the first intercessory prayer. This is the first example, I should say, in the Bible of an intercessory prayer. What, what's an intercessory prayer? Someone going before God and asking, pleading for something. This is it. Genesis 18. What an example for us. Now, Tim Keller wrote uh, something I, th I thought so helpful about this prayer, this back-and-forth conversation, uh, this prayer life of Abraham. And this is what he said, and I've been thinking about this a lot, and I'll tell you why. Keller wrote this. And by the way, Keller is a, um, a, a teacher, a preacher, writer in New York City. is a congregation re redeemer in New York City. Abraham knows this God is a living God, Keller writes, a real God infinitely loving and infinitely holy at the same time. And it creates this incredible prayer life, okay? Intimately loving, intimately holy, those things create an incredible prayer life, Keller. And then he goes on to say this, his prayer is neither formal nor vague, but alive, personal, real. My favorite line right here. It is adventurous and risky and passionate and intimate all at once. Now, here's a little application for you and me. Does that remind you of your prayer life? Adventurous, risky, passionate, intimate? Y'all, that doesn't sound like my prayer life. Right? I, I, I'm, I'm more like, you know, these other words, you know, it says neither formal nor vague. I can get formal with God sometimes. I can get vague with God sometimes. A lot of times my prayer is just like... I don't know if you're really hearing this, but my prayers, I'll, I'll be honest, right? I don't, whatever you think of me as your pastor, I, I don't know that I would say it's adventurous and risky and passionate and intimate. Abraham's is. I hope you're thinking right now, could, could my relationship with God be remarkable like that? Could my prayer life, could it be more marked by these adjectives? I, I think it can. And I want to come back to that at the end. That's theme one, remarkable relationship, Abraham and God. Could your relationship with God be a little more like that? Theme two, remarkable nature of God's justice. 
This passage is certainly about judgment, justice. But I want you to see something about the justice that will split this passage wide open for you, I think. Uh, last week, Lloyd talked about the $64,000 question. You remember where that was in the, in the text? It was up, I think, it was verse 14. Here's the $64,000 question from last week's passage. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And what's God's answer? Of course not. It's a rhetorical question. God asked this question. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? You know the answer. No, it's not. And, and then he proves it. Sarah's about to have a baby, as old as she is, right? So that's the message of last week's passage. Nothing's too difficult for the Lord. Well, there's another rhetorical question buried in this week's passage. And just like last week, this week's passage pivots around this rhetorical question. Anybody see it? Abraham is the one that asked it. It's just as rhetorical as last week. It's at the end of verse 25. The end of verse 25. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? It's rhetorical. Abraham knows he's going to deal justly. He just wants to see what God's justice actually looks like lived out in real life. And here's this case study of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this is the part that when I started this next part, is the part when I started to see this, it changed this, this unusual rock formation in my mind. And I started seeing the beauty in the, in the uniqueness of it. And this is what, what I want to hopefully draw out. When you first read this passage, it sounds like Abraham is the one that's challenging God. And there's a sense of the boldness, right? We've already talked about that. That's true. But, but who's, really, who's really challenging who? And I want to point this out. God was the one that brought up the topic of judgment, not Abraham. So here's what God does. Now, this is fascinating. God has this out loud conversation with him. Should I, should I not bring Abraham into this judgment that I'm about to do? Yes, I think I will. Abraham, I'm about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And then guess what? He sends those two angels away. They leave. And who's left standing? God, Abraham. God brings up the topic. And then he just waits. He arranges personal one-on-one -on -one time with his servant. And then he waits for Abraham to start engaging in this. Well, wait a second. Wait a second, God. How's this going to work? I think what's going on here is God is drawing Abraham in. You see, I think they have the exact conversation that God wants Abraham to have. Now, why do I think this? Number one, he brings up the conversation. And we know why he brings it up. We already read that in verses 17 through 19. He's saying, if this man Abraham is going to be a great and mighty nation, he needs to learn some things about righteousness and justice. So picture it this way. Do you all remember um, science class, high school or college? You know, you'd hear a lecture in a classroom and then you'd go into the lab and you take those test tubes and you start mixing them and you just hope you don't blow something up. This is what Abraham is doing. He's in the lab. God has led him in the lab. God has set him up and he is allowing Abraham to push in. Now, God could have just said, enough, Abraham, I don't want to hear this. No, he invites the conversation, the back and forth dialogue. At any point in time, God could have put a stop to it. He never does. See, he set Abraham up because he wants to teach Abraham something about the nature of God's justice. Now, what does he want to teach Abraham about justice? What do we learn from all of this, basically? Two things. 
two big ideas about God's justice. First, Abraham learns God is always attuned to injustice. Always attuned to injustice. Look down at your scripture at verse 20. The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they've done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, many people, when they hear this and then they read the rest of the story, which we're going to see next week of Sodom and Gomorrah, they they think, man, those cities just ticked God off, and and he he comes down and and, in anger just wipes them out. That's not what's happening here according to verses 20 and 21. How do we know? There's a key word in these verses. It's the word outcry. Now, what does outcry mean? It's the translation of a Hebrew word that means the cries of the oppressed, those who have been victimized, those who have, have been walked upon, those who have been treated unjustly, unfairly. The word first appears in the verb form in Genesis chapter 4, after Cain kills Abel. God shows up and says this to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Same word, outcry. Now, this is metaphorical language, right? I don't actually believe that the blood was verbally making some noise. God's using this in a sense to essentially say, I hear the cries of the victim. Those that are on the wrong end of justice, those are that, the ones who have been abused, the ones that have been tread upon, the outcry of the oppressed, that this idea God's saying, I've heard it from Sodom and Gomorrah. There are many, many people who've been wounded and hurt and broken by the actions and activities of these cities. Now, by the way, our culture at large, and, and, and we're part of culture, wants to pit justice against mercy and they want to say I don't believe in a God who judges I believe in a God who's merciful and they want to make those separate things they, they want to say don't tell me about God judging don't tell me about God's justice God is a merciful God he's a compassionate God he loves everyone we agree with all those statements but here's the thing if you strip away the justice of God what do you do about the outcry of the victim what do you do about those who are oppressed my wife Jody and I, not long ago, were wa- watching a documentary about modern-day slavery and human trafficking, and I just kind of felt way, like, welling up in me. This just like, oh, God, would you intervene? Would you hear the outcry of the oppressed? Would you do something about this? Would the just judge show up? And what the scripture is teaching us is God hears the outcry. So you can't say God is merciful without saying God is a just judge. Right? Because he's not merciful. What about the oppressed? What about the victims? What about the outcry of those who are crying out? God must intervene, you see. That's why you can't pit those things against each other. He is just and he is merciful. Now, by the way, I I need to go one more level because we got to own this. We got to make this personal. 
There are no victimless sins. So I mentioned human trafficking. That's easy to see the victim. You are thinking, yeah, man, yeah, outcry the oppressed. Yeah, God, go get them. You know, go get those evil people that are doing this to these kids. But then I say this, there are no victimless sins. Now, what do I mean by that? I want you to think for a minute about God's intent for his creation. God's intent for his creation is all of his creation living under his rule, characterized by righteousness and peace. In Hebrew, peace is shalom. And it doesn't just mean the absence of war. Shalom means right relationships, everything knitted together properly, right relationship with God, right relationship with each other, right relationship even with the creation. That's shalom. That's the Garden of Eden. And that's what's going to happen at the end in Revelation 21, 22. In the middle, we live in broken shalom. And every sin is a tear in the fabric of shalom, of peace, of rightness. Every sin every sin. So some of y'all are thinking, you know, my sins are mostly private. They're personal. Nobody knows about them. The things that I struggle with the most, you know, I'm not hurting people by that. Hold on a second. Every time you sin, every time I sin, what we're doing is we're taking our eye away from the just judge and we're saying, I don't want to live under your authority. At least for this moment, I don't want to pursue righteousness and justice. I want to make my own rule and you can't do that without it affecting your heart. You can't do that without it affecting how you relate to other people. Over time, you become cold, you become hardened in your rebellion against God's righteousness and his rule over your life. And the people that feel it the most are those that are closest to you. The outcry of the oppressed reaches the ears of our Lord. Now, we don't like talking about this. And, and we don't like going there. We don't like to feel the burden of our sin hurting other people, not even to mention our own selves. But this is this concept in Hebrew. God is attuned to the cries of those who are victims, those who have been hurt by my sin, by your sin. The first thing that Abraham needs to learn about God's justice is that he is attuned to the injustice. But the second thing he needs to learn about justice is the good news. And that is just how much God values righteousness. How much God values righteousness. Now, he learns this, Abraham does, through a fascinating back and forth laboratory with God. Right? You know, Melons, arguing about the price of melons. This is Abraham learning how much God values righteousness. So here's what happens. Abraham has a starting place with God. He says, I know you're the just judge, the rhetorical question. We already talked about, I know you're going to do what's right. But then he's saying, but what does it look like for you to do what's right? And so he introduces a hypothetical situation. Abraham does. He says, what if there are 50? What if there are 50, right? 50 righteous, and this is from verse 24, will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Now, that's radical. Now, why is it radical? At first glance, it doesn't seem radical, 
At first glance, it seems like what Abraham is doing is saying, God, would you not spare the 50? Rescue the 50. So maybe like what you did with with Noah and the flood. You know, you, you took out his family, you took out Noah, and then you wiped everybody else out. Would you do that again? That's not what Abraham's asking. He could have. That's not what he asks. Look again. Look again at the text. Verse 24. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50? Spare the place. The whole thing. So this is where it's amazing. If you think about this, is so radical. What Abraham is saying is saying, God, do you value righteousness? I know you hate evil, but do you value righteousness enough that the righteousness of a small remnant could rescue the many evil ones? Note the word spare in verse 24, and it shows up again and again in the text. If you're reading from the New American Standard, you may notice a little margin note, and it'll bring your eyes over, and it'll say, or forgive. In other words, that word spare it could very legitimately, from Hebrew, be translated spare, or it could be translated Forgive. In Hebrew, it's, it's lift up, literally. And it's usually used in a forgiveness context. Would you lift up? Would you restore into right relationship? I.e., forgive. So what Abraham's asking is incredibly radical. He's saying, I, I know you, you, you're a judge who values justice, but do you love righteousness enough to forgive everyone, not just the good ones, forgive everyone on the, for the sake of the small few who are righteous? And then I think Abraham kind of sits back and waits for God's answer. And, and then God says, yes, I will. And then Abraham, I think Abraham's like, he said yes. If, if he said yes to 50... 45. Surely, God, you're not going to not do that for, for the sake of five difference. And so then, then he becomes this like used car salesman, right? <laughs> you know, you're not going to walk away from the deal for $300, right? Come on. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20. And Abraham's just like, man, I can't believe this. I, I think he's learning. He, he's like, this is completely changing the way he's thought about God's righteousness. I think he's, he, he's on the edge of his seat. And every time God says yes, he's just like, right, can you believe this? You know, I'm going to keep going. I like the way F.B. Meyer wrote it. F.B. Meyer was a, a British preacher from the, he was a contemporary of Dwight Moody, right? So this is, 100 years ago or so. Abraham did not learn the vast extent of God's righteousness and mercy all at once. He climbed the dizzy heights step by step, and as he gained each step, he was inspired to dare another. That's what's happening. God is educating Abraham on the nature of his justice, how much he values righteousness. Now, as you're reading this, you can't help but wonder as it's dipping down 50, 45, 40, you know, it's like, how low is he going to go? It's like, you know, like a limbo competition, right? How low is he going to go? Now, he stops at 10. God doesn't stop at 10. Abraham stops at 10. Why does he stop at 10? We don't know. Here's some theories. Theory number one, he felt like he'd pushed his luck far enough. That's a, a, a real life. Like, I, I might have done that. Theory number two. 
there's some indication that in that culture, 10 was the minimum number to be considered a group or a community. So Abraham didn't go below 10. Uh, another theory is essentially Abraham just must have assumed there were at least 10. I mean, come on, there's a city, right? Surely there's 10. He stops at 10. As we'll hear next week, there weren't 10. Spoiler alert. The city will be destroyed. In fact, as you'll see next week, there wasn't even one. Now, you might be thinking, what about Lot? Right? God, uh, Lot is rescued. His family is rescued. But it wasn't because of Lot's righteousness. In fact, you'll see next week, Lot didn't want to leave. He's literally pulled out. And at the end of next week's text, there's a verse that says, because of Abraham, God rescued Lot. Now, not even one righteous in the city. And, and as I read this text, our text this morning, every time I read it, I just want Abraham to ask one more. Right? Anybody with me on this? Like you're going down from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. And then Abraham stops at 10. I'm like, Abraham, you're on the 10-yard line. <laughs> it's like 10 more yards. Now, what's the last question you want Abraham to ask? So imagine this, God. I know I said I wasn't going to speak again, but I got to speak just one more time. How about one? One. Would you forgive the whole city on account of one righteous one? One righteous person. Abraham doesn't ask the question, but you know what the answer is, don't you? progressive revelation of scripture reveals that God's answer is yes. Yes. If it's the right one. Now, here's what's going on in Genesis 18. The curtain of God's grand redemptive plan for his people is being cracked open just a little bit. And Abraham and, and we, through this text, are catching a glimpse of this doctrine that we would learn later, theologians would teach us, is called substitutionary atonement or imputed righteousness. Now, those are big words. All they simply mean is the righteousness that one person might earn could be placed on another person that didn't earn it, that doesn't deserve it, and that person is treated like he earned the righteousness himself. That's imputed righteousness. Now, there's a lot that Abraham can't see, but you see that doctrine starting to get opened up just a little bit as God is instructing Abraham what it means to be a just judge with mercy and compassion. This is how much I value righteousness, God says. Now, there's a lot that Abraham couldn't have known. He couldn't have known what Solomon would write a thousand years later in the book of Ecclesiastes when Solomon writes, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. 
We know that to be true. We, 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 we sense that. And, and, and really what's, what would have been new for Abraham, because Abraham knew that he was a sinner himself. He knew Lot was a sinner. He knows everybody was a sinner. But what was different for Abraham is God's concept of righteousness is not based on external good works alone. It is based on this internal, kind of like the, the, the inside of the cup, the inside of the vessel, as Jesus would explain later. And we, human beings, who are born into sin, born into depravity and brokenness, there's no way we can be pure from the inside out. We can't do it. We can't do it. Abraham couldn't have fully understood that. He also could not have fully understood what we understand, that a thousand years after Solomon, one would come who is clean, fully righteous, the one righteous one. And so the question that Abraham never asked would be definitively answered. God, would you spare the many evil ones for the sake of one righteous person? God's answer is yes. Yes. But. But the righteous one cannot be spared. He must be crushed. Because the outcry of the oppressed has reached my ears and I am a just and compassionate God. And so I will crush my son, the one righteous man, so that the many can be spared, the many can be forgiven. This is the good news. This is the good news. Some of you in the room, maybe you're understanding this good news for the first time. Like it's actually starting to make sense to you. You know you've sinned. Like you know you're not truly righteous from the inside out. Nobody is. You know that your sins have caused God's just judgment against you because of the outcry of those that you have hurt and wounded intentionally or not. And what I'm declaring to you from the truth of Scripture, what I'm simply pointing out to you is the nature of God's justice is such that the one righteous man can be crushed for you. And you can be alive you can live, you can receive new life, you can follow Jesus in his resurrection, your own resurrection. Some of you even this morning, like, it's just, it's just clicking. I, I just know this is true. You've heard of this before, but it just is, hasn't maybe made sense. And through God's spirit, he's just opening up your eyes to see it. If that's the case, welcome to this family, the family of the redeemed. Just put your faith in Jesus. Trust in the one righteous one. That's the message of Scripture. That's all it is. You don't have to do a bunch of religious stuff. You don't have to get all good. You just believe in the one who was good for you. This is the good news. Now, many of us have put our faith in Jesus at some other point. It wasn't today, but here's what I'm, I'm hoping. At some point in the past, you put your faith in Jesus. There's application for us this morning too, and here's the application. When you hear this good news, again, proclaimed to you through the scripture, through maybe a passage of scripture that you never saw the gospel in before, would that gospel open you up and push you into a remarkable relationship with God, a more remarkable one than you have now? Now, what do I mean by that? How does the gospel, how does the good news 
push you into Christ in a more intimate way. Well, there's two things, if you really understand the gospel, two things that you know. Number one, you know that you're so unrighteous that Jesus had to die for you. Right? That's how bad, that's how bad you are. He, someone had to die for you. But number two, you know that you are so valued and loved that he did die for you. Now, the first statement will make you humble. The second statement will make you bold. That's what the gospel does. That's what the good news of Jesus for Christians, those of you that like, you know, you understood this when you're six or four or 20 or 40 and, and now, you know, you've kind of moved on from life. You never move away from the gospel. You never move away from that, that basic truth. I am so depraved and wicked apart from Jesus Christ that he had to die for me and I am so loved and chosen and valued that he did die for me. I have humility. I have boldness and I can go into the throne room as the New Testament says with confidence. Boldly go into the throne room and you talk to this God who loves you because you're forgiven. Some of you haven't talked to him in a long time. It's time for you to step up. It's time for you to approach him like Abraham did. It's time for you to get face to face and say, yes, I am dust and ashes, but I am a chosen, beloved dust and ashes. This is the truth about you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see this? Would you be more bold in your prayer? Would your prayers start to come alive with passion and, and risk and intimacy? One more place I got to take this as we wrap up. If we've been given this kind of remarkable relationship with God that the scripture proclaims about us, would we leverage it to intercede for those who have not yet found grace? This is what Abraham is doing in this passage, right? He's saying, God, I got to eat with you. God, I'm walking with you. I'm talking with you. I'm chosen. I'm a part of this covenant. I'm going to press in to that relationship. I'm going to leverage that relationship for the sake of other people. And by the way, those other people were no friends of Abraham's. Sure, there was Lot. He was, you know, his nephew, but he's not interceding for Lot. Abraham doesn't go on behalf of Lot. He goes on behalf of the city, these wicked, evil people that had treated Abraham unfairly and unjust. Do you see this? He is leveraging his relationship with God to intercede for people that have not yet found covenant relationship with God. This is what we're called to do. We live in a day and age where we need to intercede. You have neighbors that are living under God's judgment that don't know that simply by putting faith in the one righteous one, they can be with God. Right, you have people in your family. We have people all across this community. Would you intercede for them? Would we intercede for them? Would we leverage our relationship, our closeness with God for the sake of other people? And would we share? Would we talk? But I don't want to go there yet. I just want to say, would you pray? Would you intercede? Would you just talk to God about it like what Abraham is doing? And by the way, would you intercede for our leaders? Would you intercede for our nation? Would you intercede for our world? This is what we're called to do. I want to invite you to do that even now. If you bow your heads with me. Our Father, 
I'm reminded that even now as I'm praying, you're right here. Like you, you, you and I are face to face. You're, you're face to face with every single man and woman and child in this room that has put their faith in Jesus Christ. You're right there. God, you could strike us down, but you will not because you allowed your son to be struck down for us. And he earned for us this remarkable relationship incredible love incredible intimacy and father we don't get that like we don't understand it we don't live that way we don't lean into it like abraham did and my prayer for the men and women in this body is that they'd start doing that that they would understand how depraved they are apart from Christ, but how righteous they are in Christ. That when you look at them, you don't see the dirt, you don't see the, the messiness, you don't, you don't even, it's not the cries of the oppressed that they've created that you're holding on their account that's been paid for. You see your son, Jesus Christ, and you're so pleased. You're so pleased. And Father, would you help us in that intimacy, to not just soak it in, but look outward and see our family members and our friends and our neighbors that are living under your just judgment. And would you help us to plead for them, to cry out for them? Would you give us the words to pray? Would you give us confidence that you're listening and that you care? And, and would we boldly and adventurously and even in risk intercede on behalf of them, intercede on behalf of the leaders of our nation, intercede on behalf of our world. When we read the headlines, we want to go to fear. We don't need to go to fear. We go to boldness. We go to asking you. We go to leaning into our relationship with you. And I pray, Father, that would be the posture of our hearts at Fellowship Bible Church. I pray that we would know the remarkable relationship that is ours through Jesus Christ. And we would leverage it for the sake of a lost and dying world. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, his name alone, his righteousness alone, that we can talk to you. We thank you for that. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.